0: Hello and welcome to the Labor of Love podcast. I'm Nari Baker, I'm a Korean adoptee and a mother based on Coast Salish land, otherwise known as the
1: Seattle area. And I'm Robin Park, a Korean adoptee and a therapist living on Tongva, Jumash, and Keech land, otherwise known as the Los Angeles area. Today, we are very excited to be here with Dr. Kimberly McKee.
0: She is the chair and associate professor of the Integrative Religious and Intercultural Studies Department at Grand Valley State University. She is the author of Disrupting Kinship, Transnational Politics of Korean Adoption in the United States, and co-editor of Degrees of Difference, Reflections of Women of Color on Graduate School. She is the parent of a lovely three-year-old toddler and step-parent to an 18-year-old and 21-year-old. Welcome, Kim, and thank you so much for sharing this space with us.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. We
0: are just honored and excited to begin our conversation. And with all of our guests, we start with the same question every time, and that is, what are the top two parenting themes you are meditating on
2: these days? I've been thinking a lot about going back to work. So I was really fortunate. I was on sabbatical last year from work. So I was focusing on my research. And because of the pandemic, it meant that I was home. Mm -hmm. And when the pandemic started, my son was about seven months old. He's now three. So the majority of his life in which he remembers, I was always home, even though I'd gone back to work after being on maternity leave initially before shutdown. Even when I was teaching online and working remotely, again, I was home because we weren't doing anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel so much gratitude to have been able to do that because I know so many people did not have that as an opportunity. But now that I'm going back, and I am back in the office and going to campus and that kind of thing, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what that means in terms of how I connect with him. And how he's experiencing that mm. and how he's understands that when he wakes up in the morning and he's like, oh, mommy's at work or what it's like when I'm home. And so I think for me, it's spending a lot of time thinking about what does it mean to create a meaningful and intentional connection with him when I am home and how to be present in those spaces.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: One of the things that I continuously think often about is How much our personalities are so similar. Mm. What happens when you're an adoptee and you recognize yourself and your child and that personality? Mm -hmm. You know, my husband and I, who's also an adopted Korean, as am I, we have talked about how much his personality reminds us of his brother, my stepson. And so, also thinking about how all of that plays a role and thinking about nurture nature and those sort of broader themes that I think for many of us who are adopted, spend a lot of time kind of wrestling with about those what ifs or those other possible timelines you could be living on. Mm. Um, So thinking here about, I don't know, like the work of Shannon Gibney and her upcoming Project, right, where she's talking about different kinds of adoptee timelines and what that looks like, or thinking about Matthew Celesi's work around like doppelgangers. And I know Sun Young Shin has talked about this as well. And so, just again, thinking about what is it that we pass on to our children and, and what they see, and what does that mean then when you see parts of yourself and you're like, I know this, I know what you're doing. You know, mm. there's this, it's funny, it's adorable. <laughs> My son does this like deep sigh already at three when he gets like, oh, mom, kind of like a sigh. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I know that sigh. I do that sigh. Gosh, this is like <laughs> a funny, odd experience to to be having.
0: It's so interesting that you say that. Yeah. I, I think before having kids, there's just so much, at least I'll speak from my own experience of wondering about what the bio kit will look like. And there's a lot placed on that, I think within our community with a reunion with birth family, but it goes so much deeper than that, you know, personalities and mannerisms and like someone, the way someone walks their gait, Mm. And then, like you said, kind of that telepathic, you know, like I actually understand why you're reacting this way. There's so many layers, you know, you can't prepare for that. And so, thank you so much for speaking to that kind of wider experience, that much more expansive experience
1: of creating
0: birth family, I guess, uh, through becoming a parent.
1: Yeah, and and you bring up the part around which I think leads us into another part of the conversation, which is really co-parenting and doing this largely during a global pandemic. You know, I know your son was born in. 2019, right in the summer of 2019, right kind of before this was all our world just changed, and you know what it was like for you, not only during that time of is really formative years. You know, zero to three is such a, a really important time and and the brain development and growth of a child, but also just really what that was like navigating it as postpartum for you. If there were pieces around that that you want to speak to, or even during even before the pandemic, but during your pregnancy and preconception, what was that like for you? I think as we talk about BIPOC adoptee bodies and parenting and what that was like when you embodied pregnancy and and your experiences that also maybe you noticed that were similar or different to other friends or colleagues or, or folks that you've known who have also experienced pregnancy, what some of those nuanced experiences were like for you?
2: Well, I first should say that I gained like 60 pounds when I was pregnant. You know, my body definitely changed and it changed pretty quickly. And I say that because as somebody who's barely 5'2", there's only so much place the baby can go until it just starts going out. And then you just, Mm -hmm. just get large. And it was interesting for me as my body was changing, not only because... My first trimester, I did experience the nausea, and so that was a real telltale sign uh for some folks within my family. All I ate was Cheerios before I started <laughs> eating a lot more food. Um it was the only thing that you know it was bland and it was like somewhat appealing. I haven't really gotten back to eating Cheerios because I was like, mm, I'm okay now. I can not do that for a little bit. But I think one of the things because I am fortunate to have been reunited with my birth parents in, gosh, 2013. And I, as I gained that weight, I noticed my, ar- my upper arms changing. And I think about this a lot because there was a moment where I realized like the doughiness of my arms really reminded me of my Oma's arms. And that's something I never thought I would really think about. One of the things we don't realize is being a working mom can be very much a privilege depending on the role and the job we inhabit. Mm-hmm. I think about my ability to pump, so I, I i ended up nursing my son because of the pandemic until he was close to three. He was about two and a half. I was done, I was ready. I love him, but i was I was ready and I don't think I would have nursed him for that long except for covid
0: mm-hmm.
2: That was never my intention going into it. I thought, okay, we'll see what happens after a year. Well, you know when a pandemic happens and you're thinking about. All of these other kinds of things, it just, and I was home, I just didn't wean. But until then, to think about sort of as a working parent doing that is thinking about the time spent pumping and what that looks like and how pumping is kind of an invisible labor of sorts that people don't think about the time. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: People also don't think about how I think physically hard nursing is. It's not natural as much as people are like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's wonderful. It's natural. (laughs) It is hard work. Mm -hmm. I I treated it as it was its own job Yes, because I was having a difficult time nursing my son. I think if things didn't work out how they would have, we probably would have turned to formula. We were supplementing from formula from the very beginning anyways. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't one of those things that I was like, oh, I have this Specific urge to nurse. It wasn't that. It was that. Well, let's try this. If it works, cool. If it doesn't, fed is best. Mm. I was formula fed. I'm sure many of our your listeners were formula fed by virtue of being adopted, right? And so thinking about to the kind of rhetorics around biology that get invoked. Yes. And that was something that, like, I was conscious of, like, intellectually aware of. And I just would continually remind myself, "Fed is best. Is he getting enough nutrients? What does that look like? And so even as I would join these these Facebook groups for like advice about like pumping and nursing, I was always really mindful of that because I think sometimes, those kinds of conversations end up devolving into something that's really mom shaming and mm. unproductive and parent shaming and and that's what I hope folks don't think I'm trying to do here.
0: Mm.
2: But I think the other thing you know that I wanted to say about what it was like for me at least when the pandemic started was you're watching everything unfold in the world, you're seeing what happens to small, tiny humans who, you know, you would see in the in news articles, like the worst case scenarios that obviously get highlighted and picked up. And it was hard. It was definitely stressful for us. But we were also really fortunate in terms of being home with him for so long. So thinking about my spouse having the privilege to be able to work from home when shutdown started, my stepdaughter was actually home for spring break, and she stayed. It was hard for her. It was a hard adjustment for her. I think she would readily admit that now. My stepson was a junior in high school then. You know, he felt like he went from basically, though, being like a high school sophomore in some respects, because that was the last time he did a full year of school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm and then going to college as a freshman last year. So really thinking too, you know, he was home and it was it was so great to see all three of them together. It was so great to see those intentional bonds that may not have been there had we not been in that situation.
1: Mm.
2: You know, especially given the way COVID has decimated so many Black and Brown and Indigenous communities, I feel very fortunate that we were able to be together as a family when so many families were unable to do that and thinking about how the pandemic has disproportionately affected folks of color. Yeah, absolutely. I think that
0: highlighting that and drawing that out
2: in our conversations is so important
0: that the impact has been so different across race, class, gender. I don't think it really can be touched on enough. Just going back to what you were talking about with nursing, I just can identify with that so much. Uh, I think that is also very regional, depending upon where you live. In terms of the type of rhetoric of being, quote-unquote, breast is best, and I love that you you really highlighted that fed is best. For much of my pregnancy, I heard a lot of these, quote-unquote, studies about how people's IQs are higher if they've been breastfed. And as an adoptee who was not, I took a lot of offense to that. And also the entire generation of our adoptive parents, you know, growing up in the 50s and 60s, a lot of them also were bottle fed as well on formula. Um, So it's just kind of this interesting swing that I think that we're seeing, but also just going back to the adoptee experience of it just being so loaded, the breastfeeding being so loaded in terms of kind of you know, for some of us really wanting to create that biological connection for other of us, maybe longing to have had that experience ourselves and then wanting to provide something or, and then for others where that might actually not be the case at all. But there is some type of thought process around that I think for so many adoptee parents. So I really appreciate hearing more of your experience about that. But kind of where you ended, I think is also a great segue into yeah, just being hearing more about your experiences, being part of a blended family. I love that you, you know, especially at this point of the pandemic, can look back and see that there was these bonds that were created, especially with the age gap between your youngest and your stepchildren and that time of real challenge and hardship, but that there were also these moments of real connection that may not have happened in the same way had it not been for lockdown. So we'd love to just hear a little bit more about some of those perspectives that you've seen, especially as, you know, your son has now been added and maybe seeing some of those uh, personality and or maybe physical uh, similarities between the kids and just yeah, curious to hear more about that.
2: I've been a part of my stepkids' lives since they were about six and eight. My now husband and I have been together, you know, for quite a while before we even got married our relationship obviously continues to evolve not only just because of age but because of where i am in my life and where they are in theirs and thinking about what that looks like if you probably asked me when i first started dating my husband if you know we would be in a gr- in these family group texts with his ex-wife i probably would have laughed you know <laughs> he knows this but now we're in you know multiple <laughs> group texts she and her mom have spent the holidays with us. You know, so we, I think about those kinds of shifts that have happened. And granted, this is because we've been, gosh, together for over 10 years at this point. And so, you know, obviously things changed. But, you know, I think about the comfort and familiarity in terms of our house's home still, mm. I think, mm-hmm. for both of them. They both have their rooms. We haven't really touched them or done, done much with them to, to change that, in part because, you know, my stepson was home with us over the summer. I'm not sure how many more summers we have with him at home, in mm. part because I think he's wants to live in the, in the city during the summer and between college and stuff because he goes to a university in Chicago. But yeah, I mean, I think overall, seeing how close they are, especially my stepson, is with his younger brother. And just seeing that bond and that excitement, as well as our toddler says, oh, he's back at college now, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or seeing how both boys, like when, would Max, my stepson, would be out when we picked him up from college in May, and we were packing up the car, he's like, oh, I'm going to take my brother and he like showed him off to all of his friends and like, you oh. know, said bye to folks. Oh. And it was it was it's really heartwarming. You know, I'm sure if he listens to this, he'll be like, oh, why'd she say that? But nah, it was <laughs> it was heartwarming for us. Right. <laughs> and just to see that my Max says this. This makes me sound like I'm a, like a basic suburban white mom and then like a white family thing. But I ended up doing matching holiday pajamas, those fam jams that you see. So, um, and I, I did this in December of 2020. I was like, okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna have like this tiny Christmas, I'm gonna just we're gonna get these fam jams and we're gonna wear them all day, and it's gonna be so much fun, and it's gonna be like a whole thing. And and it was it was a lot of fun. And so we did it last year, and then this year, my stepdaughter won't be coming home, so it'll just be you know my steps my stepson will be home my the toddler and then my husband and you know we'll have other family obviously but it's just really the core of us that I buy fam jams for and i said hey i'm going to buy some and he's like why are you going to do that <laughs> and I, he's like
1: it's such a <laughs> like a
2: white mom thing to do like a white suburban mom thing and i was like well you know i think it's funny and it's fun for us and i'm going to do it and he was kind of pushed back. I was like, Well, do you not want me to buy you any? Because then you won't have any. And then it was like silence. So I was like, Okay, well, I'm going to get us some. Right. <laughs> because this is the same guy where I got t shirts for our son's third birthday this year. And I, I've done it in the past. And Max's t shirt usually says, Brother of the Birthday Boy. Well, this year I didn't get him one because like I didn't know he wouldn't want one. And he was like, Where's my t shirt? And I was like, See, you like these things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think with both Max and Ashley, my stepdaughter, you know, it's been great sort of seeing them come into their own as adults and them mature and figure things
1: out. Hmm. We hope if if they are listening that they can yes and appreciate those fam jams. You now have that fully documented <laughs> and archived. <laughs> but- (laughs) You know, I think in our earlier conversation too, because I also share uh, and I'm part of a blended family. So I grew up, both adoptive parents have biological children from previous marriages and then kind of came together and I was the first of kind of the family of adoption that they formed and, and then my younger sister too. So we have a lot of dynamics. We're spread out across the States. And I know we talked a lot about before kind of what it's like when you have to manage up and do a lot of Work with a lot of different pieces and parts and people and places. And, and now, with your stepchildren all kind of over at different colleges and, and places in their life, but also being in reunion and having a whole nother family system and dynamics and siblings and, you know, birth family members. Um, that's a lot of managing up. And so, you know, wondering about as you've been in reunion now since. 2013, as you mentioned, um, with both birth parents and siblings, how has that impacted your experiences of raising, you know, your own family? Or I think you're maybe also hoping to get back to Korea soon and just really how that is at this point in in all of your family systems.
2: One of the pieces that has helped in terms of as I navigate my own blended family situation is that Um, My parents are divorced. They divorced when I was 12. You know, I have large age gaps between myself and my youngest two Mm -hmm. siblings. My youngest brothers are 18 and 16. I have experience of what that looks like and how to navigate that kind of as a sibling. And so thinking about the things that I wanted to be intentional about as a parent. But in terms of being in reunion, so my OMA was supposed to come out in summer of 2020. To meet my son.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Obviously that did not happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I actually have not seen her since 2017. I saw my appa and his family back in 2018, that December of 2018, actually my sister, younger sister, she actually came out uh, to visit over the, over Christmas. And, and that was wonderful. And her and I went to New York. Mm. The one thing I do feel bad about was like, I think in her head, she had like an envision of what this would look like. But then I also found out I was pregnant right at the same time at like the start of her visit. So like all of the things that I had planned oh. to do in terms of like <laughs> going out and stuff, I'm also just like You're eating Cheerios. I'm <laughs> eating Cheerios, just trying to hold on. Right. And just like, <laughs> can you can you not feel like y- oh. you're gonna wanna like have this bout of nausea happen no. right now when you're mm. out with her? But so yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to get back to Korea. My stepkids met my both sides of my Korean family back in, I want to say summer of 2017. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that was great. They had a really good time. It coincided with us taking a larger family trip with my husband and his family. Mm. Two of his brothers went and then his, uh, his dad went as well. And so that was nice. We saw my family. We also went down to Jejudo and so it was a lot of fun. But yeah, no, I think both my appa and my oma are very excited. My appa is really, I think, leaning into sort of being a harabaji, being a grandpa. Mm. Because his all of his cacao Talk pictures, including his profile picture and his background, are of my son. Aww. And it's always like brand new updated pictures anytime he sees them. And so it's like really, it's cool, right? Mm. Because it's like mm. things you would never think of but again you know even sharing this here when i talk about being in reunion i feel incredibly privileged because adoptees in reunion tend to be overrepresented in sort of active adoptee spaces even though we know it's such a tiny 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 percentage of us in reunion and so i'm so mindful of that especially because I stopped and started searching multiple times and I actually had thought the door had been closed to reunion, which is why I feel so incredibly fortunate that my birth mother reached out to the agency. And, And I know that's atypical. And so again, I, you know, thinking about the different kinds of privileged spaces we inhabit as adoptees, what that looks like and what that feels like.
0: Thank you for naming that there's such a deep longing amongst all of us to be in reunion in some way, um, whether or not that's personally acknowledged or or acknowledged to others. For those of whom are in reunion, there are these unexpected things that can happen, such as your Appa really embracing his genus, you know, and... Uh, really feeling that intergenerational connection, which includes the adoption and which includes living in different continents and that connection is so strong. And so there's longing in both directions too, I think is something that also doesn't maybe get as highlighted, although it seems like it's starting to become more acknowledged. I am curious a little bit about your partnership uh with a fellow Korean adoptee. And I'm not sure if he's in reunion and how if he is, if his birth family is involved as well in your lives. And you know, it's it's rare that two adoptees end up together, although we do know, you know, some having that shared life experience and background, you know, I could just imagine makes for just a really interesting co-parenting experience and, and also just, you know, intimate connections. I'd love to hear more about, about that.
2: So he's not in reunion. He was adopted into a family that already had one son who was adopted, but younger. My one brother-in-law is my age, we're the same age. And then he was adopted actually with two of his biological siblings. So th- the three boys all came over together. Wow. He does all the cooking for the most part. He is the feeder. I am the eater and it works out great for me. (laughs) Great combination. (laughs) Sounds great. Yeah. (laughs) It never started. It didn't start out that way. Right. It just, I think because of a mixture of things, right. And what he's interested in and his love of cooking and how that has kind of shaped certain dynamics. But one of the things, you know, as we introduce foods to our son, you know, and and get him ready to sort of expand his palate. Like our son loves kimchi, he loves bop, he loves kim, he likes ramen, right? But all of these are foods that we were intentional about introducing because they're part of our diet. So we weren't going to make him separate like special snowflake food. Like he was going to just eat the same foods as we do and like he's now developing preferences. He makes him this very americanized like kimbap situation and that was something new and introduced you know at the beginning of september to try to just get him to eat something else right and we've noticed like he has strong food preferences so what that looks like and those kinds of things which is great i guess in terms of in terms of us mm. i don't think that there's specific things that i would that we have to like talk about necessarily or explain because there's just a shorthand that either has been developed between the two of us already or that I just think from both of our own lived experiences as as adoptees but just as being part of the adoptee community in various ways it works for us. I don't know. I don't know how to really explain it or or make it sound a little bit more tangible. But he has was involved with the adoptee community before we met, as was I. And so it allowed for other things to fall into place easily or more easily than potentially not being part of the community when we met.
1: Yeah, I think it it there's pieces that are unspoken in those relationships and partnerships and ways that it is hard to tangibly put out. It it just really, I think, symbiotically creates this really unique connection and ways that you then also, as parents, you know, I'm sure it informs so much of the ways that you are intentionally, I'm hearing, passing on things, whether it's food or other values or things that, um, and experiences, whether you are in reunion or not, but able to all share in that together is really quite unique and being able to have those connections together. I love that idea of passing of food and really how you're introducing and and just normalizing the types of food that you as a household eat. Anyways, I was recently with my nephew in New York and we were introducing kimchi to him, and you know, my sister's like sucking out all of the the spice but passing it on. And it's just those are so special, you know, moments to witness or to feel that intergenerational and our ancestral connection to food, passing that on to our our. Future generation. Something that I think is also really important to, to touch on in our conversation today is really about, you know, your current project and your your work that you're you're doing now. And and you've described it as a love letter to yourself and other women. The work that you do as an adoptee, but also the the work you and your your spouse have done in the community, is manifesting as a parent, but also as an educator. Can you speak more to just what your contributions in the community mean to you and also kind of your current project? Because I think as we've seen your work throughout the years, really being in this place now, I love this connection to future generations, whether that's also thinking of your child, but also thinking of kind of other, other generations. Can you tell us more about it? I came into the adoptee community
2: through research, actually. And so I first attended one of the ICA gatherings in 2007. And that's when the first International Korean Adoption Studies Symposium was being held. And that's like what drew me there. I also attended my first con conference at the Korean American Adoptee Adoptive Family Network Conference in 2007. And that's really where I started meeting other adult adoptees who are also interested in adoption studies scholarship. So in terms of my work within the community, I was a part of Con in, in various ways, holding different roles from about 2011 to 2020.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I still chat with folks who are part of the Con leadership. And, and I still enjoy being part of that community. And that's a community that I hold dear to my heart. And so I think For me, it's just one of those things that finding what's the best fit for where I am in my life, Mm -hmm. right? And what that looks like and how things might shift. Another thing that I'm doing, I think folks might have just recently seen sort of the new ICA gathering dates for 2023.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And I'm part of the organizing committee for the research symposium. And so we're, so that will be coinciding. With the ICA gathering. And I did that in 2016 and 2019 as well. And so that's been a really great way to continue the work that those who helped shape the field started. So thinking about Alina Kim, Tobias Hubenet, Kim Park Nelson, Lena Myung, Kim Langer, and others, right? And so thinking about what that looks like. I guess this is my long winded roundabout way then to lead up to what I'm currently working on. And so My current book project, it's under contract with Ohio State University Press. It's looking at representations of Asian adopted women and girls in popular culture from 1992 to 2015. And I call that my love letter to other Asian adopted women and girls because so much about that book project is looking at adoption fantasies. Hmm. Fantasies of adoption held by white adoptive parents held by Asian Americans, and the fantasies of adoption that we hold ourselves because of the way in which we've internalized these messages coming from sort of dominant media, that project focuses kind of on the mundane. So thinking about these everyday interactions in our lives, about what it means to be raised in this quote-unquote multicultural colorblind families, while also juxtaposing that to some of the other kinds of messaging. So thinking about stereotypes of Asian women's hypersexualization and what that looks like and what that feels like as an adoptee and how our adoptive parents may be furthering some of those tropes, hmm. right? And I started in 1992 because I anchor this within, because I anchor this analysis first in... Woody Allen, Suni Previn, and Mia Farrow.
0: Mm. And this
2: is because I think about how for the largest, I think, cohort, if we're thinking about sort of waves of adoptees, what's happening by the 1990s is you're seeing sort of the peak numbers of Korean and Vietnamese adoptees entering in adulthood. You're also seeing this is coinciding with the rise of China being ascending country of adoptees. And so we get kind of to this moment. Mm -hmm. And And so I, I start off with looking, thinking about Suni Previn and kind of the staying power in terms of both what that particular set of relationships looks like and how that does reverberate throughout the lives of adult adopted women and girls, whether or not people are conscious of that or not. Mm-hmm. in terms of those long-lasting legacies, and why when you talk to an adoptee of a certain age, of which I think we all probably are of that age, we all kind of remember, you know, that it, it evokes specific feelings and moments, and we sort of have a common understanding.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That project also looks at things like modern family and sex in the city, and kind of infant and toddler bodies. But I end in 2015 to really think about how Both twinsters and soul searching are interesting representations of Asian American fantasies of adoption. So, thinking about how adoptees have internalized certain kinds of fantasies and what that looks like vis a vis twinsters, right? As well as thinking about how Asian American cultural producers are complicit and also have their own kinds of investments in the types of adoption stories that they tell.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, it's been exciting working on this project. And I look at other films, obviously, as well and stuff, because I wouldn't have a book just looking at those things. I think the biggest takeaway for me as, I, as I've been working on this project is really thinking about how these cultural artifacts have real life implications. Hmm. And what does that mean when folks don't recognize that? And why having conversations about race having conversations about racialized misogyny are so important. We obviously see that in a lot of ways with the rise of anti-Asian racism uh, today too.
0: I really can't wait to read it you know, I came of age in the nineties. So all of these things that, like you said, are part of our consciousness. They're almost a part of our subconsciousness. Woody Allen's relationship with Suni Pivrin is, is definitely like kind of part of that for me. It's not something I think about every day, but I'm aware of, and it's kind of woven into the fabric of my own positionality, my own identity, my relationships, the way that I fear being seen and the by the world with my adopted dad and other white men a certain age for that matter. Yeah. And then also kind of what you're saying about our our own complicity in terms of selling our stories in a certain way that as a community, we need to grow and that these conversations are so important to help further us along in our evolution. So much about of being an adoptee is not having control of our own narratives but then there can also be kind of this false sense that we are now taking control. But if we're not aware of the way that we've been conditioned and the way that we're being directed and pushed where the money is and how, you know, how things are spun because we know it's going to sell or not, it's really doing ourselves a disservice. And it, it is a false sense of, of having agency, I think. So I really appreciate you calling that out. And I'm, I'm really curious to see how, this changes the narrative in our community
2: and how people feel about it. So I have a chapter in the book that looks at Sideways and Better Luck Tomorrow because no one reads Better Luck Tomorrow as an adoption story, but it is an adoption story. It's such a nuanced portrayal of adoption in ways that you still don't see in everyday Asian American cultural productions Hmm. because of the way in which Justin Lin normalized adoption um, and this could be because I know, you know, he, he did some other, I think, work around adoption, but it was something that in 2002, when the film came out, it was revolutionary because we didn't see ourselves on screen like that. Mm-hmm. And the character of Stephanie Der Gosh, where Virgil and a couple other characters would repeatedly say, oh, I swear I saw her in a porn. By the third time it gets said, it was very clear saying for like comedic, Like a comedic effect, like, oh gosh, look at all these people just trying to think, like, oh, Asian woman in a porn kind of thing. And so, like, calling attention to those kinds of stereotypes, but it really also made visible the ways that adopted women, Asian adopted women and girls, are read that way, just like any other Asian American woman or even Asian woman. And I think that's what people forget.
0: Thank you for those points. (laughs) I'm going to start with that chapter and then start from the beginning.
2: Well, thank you. I was, when I mentioned Better Luck Tomorrow to folks, it definitely feels generational. Mm, Yes, very much so. Right. Because I remember seeing it when I was in college, which makes me feel really old, but I remember seeing it when I was in college. It was such an impact. It made such an impact on me as a film,
1: Mm -hmm. as
2: a, as somebody who was negotiating their Asian American identity and what that looked like. So.
1: Well, we can't wait for that. When can we anticipate that hitting publication and, and being distributed?
2: I hope by fall of twenty twenty three, barring no unforeseen complications.
1: And so I'm super excited. Yes, yes, yes. I'm so excited too. So thank you for sharing about kind of what that upcoming work and things that we get to be excited and anticipate. It's gonna be a really important an important piece. So thank you for telling us a little bit more about that. And maybe an extension around that, you know, I think we're wondering also about, you know, other maybe diverse bookshelf reads that you are expanding for your children or in your family you've built out. I'm sure you have an incredible bookshelf of whether that's children's books or also even for your stepchildren too, you know, and really wondering If there's any other recommendations or your favorites um, that you've had in your fam jam and also really just things that, you know, other pieces that you would love other BIPOC adoptee parents to know or resources that you think are essential for us to be accessing.
2: Well, I think, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but my Oma, I realize, is quite the feminist parent. And one of the pieces of adv- advice that I loved and that I took away from when we saw her in 2017 was her comment that unmarried men help clean up. And I think that's amazing for a variety of reasons. But I, it was one of those like cultural things where I was like, this is fantastic. I'm going to use this. And like I repeatedly will sometimes invoke that phrase where I'm like, well, unmarried men help clean up. It's funny, but it also I think helps set a tone and frame in terms of expect engendered expectations, in terms of Mm. disrupting some norms. I guess that's like my first bit of advice is that like when we're talking about what it means for me to be a parent, it's really thinking about, well, how can I raise a feminist son and what does that look like? And how does that start off with like, hey, you clean up after yourself? regardless of age you do age appropriate tasks and we can do it together but like this is something that we do so you don't assume that mommy or somebody else is always going to clean up after you cuz i think that's how you can start breaking down some of those things but in terms of books one of my favorite books to read to my son early on and we started this i think before he was really focused on like books as like a, like a thing almost mm-hmm. but the book i like myself I really like that one. I also like whose knees are these and whose toes are those in terms of board books. Those are really, I think my three favorite that I loved reading with him. I just I supported the Kickstarter for I want to say it's called like kimchi kimchi every day or something. um, and that just came out, and I just got our copy recently, and that was that one's really exciting. My son and I are both lucky that one of his emos is Sarah Park Dalin. She's a Korean American children's lit professor, and so she's always a great resource in terms of recommending things. But I also pay attention to things like we need diverse books and sort of like what folks are saying there. I have a, I still have my Love Every subscription for him, so it's one of those like boxed subscriptions for like with Montessori toys, mm-hmm. and they come in books and he really likes those and i think they do a semi decent job with trying to represent all sorts of families and all sorts of people and watch now that i've said this somebody's going to be like didn't you know that they're like blah and i'm going to like <laughs> well thanks for making me feel bad i thought they were great but no uh, so far i you know i've been really impressed with kind of like some of the books in terms of being both age appropriate and having diverse families represented. And that's really important to us.
1: Mm-hmm. The
2: other book that I love is Mr. Watson's Chickens. It's a great book. It's about Mr. Watson and his partner and all their chickens at their house. And it's this fantastic book. And I was spurred to buy the book because I saw that parents were upset because it was showing sort of a gay couple in this book about mm, chickens. Yeah. And I was like, well, yeah. that sounds like a perfect book for me to introduce to my family. Because at the time, my son was also super into chickens and like oh. farm stuff. So, I mean, it's a great it's a great book for a variety of reasons. But I think it's about how can we create these bookshelves intentionally where we're highlighting diversity. A friend of mine got me this book called My Shape is Sam about a square wanting to be a circle. And mm-hmm. so then mm-hmm. about how Sam the square wanted to be a circle.
1: Mm.
2: I'm still trying to finish Crying in h I know that book's been out mm-hmm. for a while. I just haven't had the time. I don't know. It's hard sometimes to juggle when you're like reading things and when you're doing stuff. Oh, but yeah. another adoptee memoir that I think folks really should know about that I love, and she's a good, she's a friend Colleague of mine is Jenny Wills Is uh, memoir older sister, not necessarily related. It's amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: She's a Canadian Korean adoptee, and it's it's such a great book. It may not necessarily be about parenting, nor is "Crying in Age Mart" for that matter, really. I guess, but mm-hmm. I think in terms of the kind of like, what are you reading, or what are you thinking about? Those are the mm-hmm. those are two that I go back to.
0: Thank you for that. We'll definitely highlight those, and you know, put links in so that people can access those and appreciate kind of the range of kids and also adult Mm -hmm. books as well. That our community has produced so many things and then also just are, I think, hungry for representation and just starting conversations much, much, much earlier, or if not at all for us in our own childhood to be able to have those types of connections and conversations with our own kids. Our last question today is that we always close on is what are the other labors of love besides parenting in a pandemic?
2: Are you currently working on? (laughs) Oh goodness. That's such a great question because I'm not sure if I have such a fantastic answer to be paired with such a wonderful and thoughtful question. I think I continue to think about adoption from a variety of Other perspectives. So, thinking about the academic work that I'm doing, and so thinking about, I'm ruminating and sitting with both the short story and the film after Yang Mm.
0: in terms of
2: representations of adoption and techno orientalism. So, that's something that I'm working on. I'm also working on thinking about broader overlaps and conversation between critical adoption studies and critical refugee studies. And sort of thinking about what that looks like when we start talking about displacement, diaspora, legacies of US militarism and imperialism and those sorts of things. And then obviously my book project. I think one of the things that I'm most excited about though, in terms of my own labors of love is is really thinking about ways to be intentional with my family. Mm. So it's not just parenting. I think it's going beyond that. And it's It's really thinking about, well, what does actually matter? Mm -hmm. What is actually important? Mm -hmm. I think for many people, not just myself, that the pandemic has really put a lot of things in perspective for folks. And so thinking about how we're prioritizing family, whether it's our, our relationships with our partners or our children or even with ourselves. So thinking about that new level of thoughtfulness, people are ready to engage in some conversations about what, what is working and really remembering too, that if we aren't kind of finding what brings you joy, I guess if we're going to mari Kondo it, but like (laughs) if you're not finding those things that bring about that happiness, it's really hard then to do all of the other things. And so, It's another trite expression, but like thinking about what fills your cup or what, you know, Mm -hmm. could be a slogan on a t-shirt. But I think all of those pieces resonate, right, for folks because we all know what that looks like and we all know that's something that we desire. But it's, I think for me then it's about, okay, well, how do we translate into something that we can have that is tangible, that it's not just saying, oh, I really would like that. That must be nice for that person. I could never do it. Well, why can't you? Mm. And so thinking about what that looks like while also holding ourselves accountable to making sure that we're showing up in the ways that we need to show up. So that way, not another person of color or woman or underrepresented person is doing that labor, right? Because that's also not what we want to do either in terms of
1: creating and crafting kind of boundaries for, for what we want in life. Thank you so much, Kim, for those beautiful reminders, but also just really taking us throughout our conversation today, you know, to a new level of thoughtfulness. You always, I think, take things and expand beyond um, and certainly felt that in our conversation today and and just the ways that you show up and continue to over and over again, but really helped make so many of these larger sometimes that feel even abstract, but, you know, themes and issues, especially navigating parenthood as an adoptee into really tangible pieces and advice, or also just your experiences, I know will resonate with so many folks. So thank you for holding space today, being in community and connection. Um, It's been a joy to be in conversation with you. Um, And, you know, for those that are listening, we absolutely will link up and make access you know, to Kim's work and the continued contributions that she is continuing to make. Um, you can also check her out at www.mcgeekimberly.com. But thank you, Kim, so much for, for showing up today and, and holding space with us. Thank you so much for having me.
2: This was wonderful. I'm so glad I could be here. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for tuning in to the Labor of Love podcast. Please like us, share us, and follow us on Instagram at Labor of Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and leave us a review if you feel moved to do so. We also
0: want to take a moment to shout out to our amazing donors. It has been so wonderful to feel the love and support of our growing community. We appreciate you. Much gratitude and thanks to Stephen, Joy, Violet, Marie, Angela, Shoup, and Annette.
1: And if you would like to join these generous donors in supporting the pod, please donate on Venmo at Labor of Love Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes.